Spotlights is a series of online events and publications focusing on a particular group of victim survivors who are often hidden from services. As part of Safe Lives Spotlight on honour-based violence and forced marriage, this week my colleague Deirdre went to London to meet Dr Sundaria Neetha, a reader in criminology at the University of Lincoln. Anitha explains why gender, sexual orientation and disability must all be considered for practitioners to fully understand and respond to the risks associated with forced marriage. We hope you find this podcast as enlightening as we have. meeting with me today. Can you start out by just telling me who you are, a bit about yourself? Okay, my name is Sundari Anita and I'm a reader in criminology at the University of Lincoln mm-hmm. and I've been researching gender-based violence, particularly violence against women and girls for about 15 years now and I've been in this sector for close to 20 years where I first started as a volunteer at a refuge mm-hmm. and I'm now a trustee of a refuge for South Asian women. Wow. So and I also spent a brief period working in a refuge and I managed a women's aid refuge wow. several years back. Yeah, great. And I know that you have been doing research around um, forced marriage um, and kind of intersectionality and forced marriage, kind of looking at gender and ethnicity and disability, things like that. Mm-hmm. Considering all that you know around that, who is that risk of forced marriage? I'd say the biggest risk factor is gender. Uh-huh. And, and um, it's also clear from evidence that we have that uh, forced marriage is prevalent in particular communities. So, okay. there is, so, that, so those two things come together, gender and particular ethnicities, to create the risk of forced marriage. Mm-hmm. What it does mean is, um, plus there are other factors, for example, um, issues around sexuality, disability, which create additional vulnerabilities for particular groups of people. And so it's about recognizing how all of these come together to create a, um, a matrix of disadvantage mm-hmm. within which this particular form of violence takes place. So if, if you're a woman, you're from a particular community, but maybe um, have a particular sexual orientation, things like that, the risks increase of forced marriage? I would say definitely. Yeah. So if you're a lesbian woman from a particular community where, um, where that sexuality is uh, frowned upon, it's seen as deviant, um, then I would say that there are um, greater risks of forced marriage for you or greater um, difficulties in being accepted for your sexuality within within your community. Mm-hmm. And I think and one thing to think about is that coercion in marriage is is something that's gendered to some degree for women from various uh, communities in that where they experience disadvantage. So if you think of say for example in Northern Ireland or in particular context where abortion is is very difficult to obtain. Mm-hmm. 
pregnancy can create very coercive contexts in which okay. in which if the person if if your boyfriend the father of your unborn of child is offering to marry you and abortion is not an option that creates a very coercive context in which um, saying no to a marriage may not be one of the choices that is in front of you we have the same in um, america for example in certain states in america um, you can get married at 15 mm-hmm. with the consent of a judge if you're mm-hmm. pregnant and it's your boyfriend who's uh, um, proposing to marry you so yeah. the judge the state steps in and says uh, we will allow you to get married and you if your parents are putting that pressure on you at 15 what chance do you have of making a choice about marriage yeah so poverty pregnancy um, there are a whole range of contexts in which women find you know a course a coercion find yeah. that their contexts are coercive and therefore their choices um aren't are made in the context of that coercion so it's where they don't have other choices, choices. or options because i think when people stereotypically think about forced marriage it's their parents or family members saying you must marry this individual or the consequences are x y or z but in other circumstances it could be i can't have this abortion if i have this baby i have to be married yeah. i don't really have another choice but to do this yeah. so it's less obvious yeah and that's i think that's the starting point coercion is con- constructed in a particular context so is consent and yeah. we need to problematize that and i think we've come a very long way in recognizing that about other forms of violence against women so for example about rape and for a long time um we thought it was straightforward in terms of people recognizing what had happened to them as sexual coercion or as rape mm-hmm. and liz kelly's um research a long time back in 88 now what she found when she spoke to women she um they told her that what what they thought was consensual relationships it's only when they left the relationships only when they could look back and reflect on it that they began to think about whether i ever had a chance to say no yeah i was married to this guy or i was um he was my boyfriend and actually there was never a space in that relationship for me to say no i don't want to have sex does it mean that every time i had sex i was coerced yeah so if there's no space to say no yeah. if that possibility doesn't exist yeah. because of that nature of that relationship yeah. then you have to think about at what point yeah. were you ever free yeah but it's the person who's experiencing this it's for, it, the onus is on them to be able to look back and say it's their word yeah so they look back and say actually that was always coercion but for practitioners we in and the case of domestic violence we always relied on the woman's word yeah so when she says this is coercive we listen to yeah. her and that's why it's very important for practitioners to listen to a person yeah. and to empower them yeah. to be able to reflect back on their yeah. experience it's that journey of empowerment that enables you to look back and think about was i ever free yeah. what were the forms of coercion that i experienced and looking at it from where i am today I can I might see the world differently I might see my experiences differently yeah. from what seemed to be the reality then so they could come to you thinking but I said yes to this marriage I didn't put up a fight I didn't outwardly just say no but when they think about their experience and their circumstances and the pressures on them they might never have had the option to even say so, no yeah. and the same can happen when you're in a marriage or in a relationship and someone has sex with you you might have never been in a position to say no no and we're moving towards notion of active consent aren't we in other yeah. other aspects of of violence against women so in terms of uh, campus cultures we're saying it's not about no means no it's about yes means yes yeah. we're looking for active consent and yep. so it's about bringing those connections together and not seeing what's happening in marriages and in forced marriages something that's unique yeah. because these debates about consent coercion uh, have been played out and yeah. we are talking about them in many different contexts yeah. of violence against women so yeah. it's about making those connections and saying okay yeah. there are similar issues here as well
So we're talking a lot about women and how women are more at risk of forced marriage than men, and a lot of that has to do with their position in society, that they often don't have other options or choices, or they're just forced and there's violence. What about men? When are they at risk of forced marriage? Um, we know that uh, coercion takes many... In a context of forced marriage, coercion isn't just physical. We know that it can be emotional coercion. It can be created by contexts. And um, we also know from, say, statistics from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office that um, of all the people, say, in 2015, about 80% um, of the people who came to them for help were women, around yep. 20, I think slightly less than 20, might have been... 17%, something around that, were men. So we know that uh, forced marriage affects men as well, but yeah. the majority of uh, victims are women. In the context of uh, the men that it affects, we also know from very little research, there isn't much on this, that the forms of coercion men experience are more likely to be emotional pressure mm -hmm. rather than physical coercion, rather than abduction, yeah. and, and you are um, dragged and, 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 you know, experience marriage, which is not to say that that coercion, uh, those contexts aren't coercive because we're recognizing that emotional pressure can have a very clear coercive force, but the forms are different. Yeah. Um, I think also from um, some of my recent research, I have also increasingly come to believe that not only is the, is the prevalence rates different, not only are the forms of coercion different, I think very, very significant is the fact that the consequences of forced marriage are very different, I okay. believe, for men and women. Okay. So, for example, um, and again, this is linked to gender, but it also other issues come in as well, for example, sexuality. So, I'll give you an example. So where um, uh, a man might be gay um, and his family don't accept his sexuality, they consider deviant, he might face huge amounts of pressure, firstly not to acknowledge his sexuality or a relationship that he might be having with um, um, yeah, another man. And so that's the context in which he might face pressure to get married to an acceptable woman from one's own community. And that is a very big pressure for him. But what um, happens following that marriage is he might be able to negotiate a life, where um, a, a double life. Okay, yeah. A situation where his family said, once you marry someone of our choice, a woman, perhaps give us a grandchild or not, those are things to be negotiated, you can carry on your second life. You can, and right, so he has to keep up the facade. Yeah, uh, so that might be. Whereas for a woman, say, um, whether it's in terms of her sexuality or whether, um, you know, that's not an issue. Once you marry, that marriage has to be lived out. So okay. the expectation is you will have sex, you will have children, you will, this will be your family, this will be your primary family. Yeah. And, and all other options are forever close to you now. Okay. And that creates a continuing context of abuse and violence, not just from the partner, you know, sexual violence in terms of forced um, uh, sex, rape, pregnancies, but from other extended members of the family. Um, I like to think of this using uh, the concept of coercive control. Yeah. And if you think about um, what does domestic violence do to you, what mm -hmm. does coercion do to you, mm -hmm. and Liz Kelly talks about how it, uh, following from Evan Stark's work on coercive control, yeah. talks about how it closes up the space for action that you have. Yeah. So if you are in a relationship where you're experiencing coercion, the space that you have to express yourself, your individuality, your identity, the space to express your rights, your freedom shrinks. Yeah. And, and that's how coercion operates. So if you think of it in those terms, for a woman who's experienced post-marriage, her space has shrinks 
and there, there are all those options that she might have had in terms of living her life the way she'd like to, her identity, expressing her sexuality, all of those places, uh, spaces close for her. Yeah. And what I've found in my research is where it's been because of their sexuality that men have been coerced into marriage. Following the marriage, which is no doubt coercive, those spaces have opened out for them. Okay. So they can carry on this other relationship so long as the community believes that they're married. They have access to dowry from the woman they married. They have access to her um, domestic labor. Yeah. They have access to sex with her if they want, and none if they don't want to. It's their decision what happens. Yeah. If they want children, then she is expected to be become pregnant. If they don't want children, then she's expected to undergo abortions. So in many ways, those spaces that were once closed because of their sexuality seem to have opened out in, in, in different ways. So it's like they both come into that marriage equally coerced and controlled into doing that with no right to choose another life. So yet for her, she is more entrapped into that situation and there's more abusive outcomes, whereas for him, it might be it just gives him a nice opportunity to then... Uh, which is not to negate that he can still not live his other no, life. No, He still has to live a life of deception. Exactly. But there are, what it means is on the basis of his sexuality, he's in a position of um, um, disadvantage. He, he's facing a lack of privilege because mm. of his sexuality. But gender trumps. On, the, on account of his gender, there are privileges that open up to him. Okay. And for her, those gender and sexuality come together to mm. create even a greater constraints now upon marriage than she faced before. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very important to think about what position does gender place you in, in a yeah. world which is in, uh, not equal, which yeah. is very gendered. Yeah. Otherwise, you miss a, a lot of that picture. What it also means for practitioners, I think, is where there's a um, where there's a man who's presenting to you, and um, uh, because of being coerced into a marriage, you also have to ask the question: What's happening to the woman in that marriage? Yeah. Because chances are, and I would I would pretty much be certain that she's also experiencing domestic violence, if she's she's been married to someone who was coerced into a marriage. Yeah. So for practitioners, while they're supporting him, he might want to leave that marriage. Mm. They need to be thinking of how do we support her. As because well. she's been come to this, uh, she's been brought to this country. Yeah, she agreed to a marriage, expecting it to be an equal, a genuine marriage. Yeah, and she's found out that all she's here for is domestic servitude, to bear children, and to show the community that they've conformed, the family's conformed to the dominant norms. So what's happening to her then? Yeah, and so the solution of nullity in the case of forced marriage may be a solution for him, mm -hmm. but where does it leave her? So let's say he. He does leave the relationship. He does become safe from his family. What's the potential of what happens to her when that marriage ends? What kind of risks are there for her? So she might be um, um, she might be sent back, um, okay. but then she'll face a lot of. Um, we know from research on women with no recourse to public funds that they may they may not be accepted by their families for not making the marriage work. Yep. Often the expectation uh, from the family is that. Um, once we get our son married, he'll be cured of his deviant sexuality. So the yeah. onus is on her through her own sexuality allure to, to bring him back from his gayness to be a heterosexual man. And therefore, often she's blamed for not making him, not through her love, not transforming him. Okay. So she might be blamed for the failure of that marriage and um, she may not have a place in her own home. Um, there are other associated issues. She may have brought a dowry when mm -hmm. she got married and the dowry is very likely to be appropriated by his family mm -hmm. which means she might be deprived of her inheritance. I can talk about it a bit later in terms of what dowry 
these. Yeah. But, yeah. but there are several consequences for her. If they are children, what happens to them as well? Yeah. So lots to think about for practitioners. So loss of finances, homelessness, immigration issues, potentially being sent back to her home country where she might not have a home and having to care for the needs of her children as well. Um, that's a lot. whole range of issues. So yeah. in that case, I think if she's here, then the whole um, uh, changes that we've had in legislation on no recourse should be able to capture her experiences. Yeah. So long as practitioners are able to recognize and name what's happening to her as domestic violence. Yeah. Yeah. Because it may be the perpetrators, maybe her family members, and and it may be in the context of a course in marriage of, of, of her husband, but mm -hmm. that shouldn't blind practitioners to the fact that what's happening to her is violence yeah. as well. Yeah. So looking at coercion control. And, and yeah. So yeah. the state of that whole relationship yeah. and see who are the victims here. Yeah. And there could be numerous yeah. and numerous perpetrators yeah. as well. And some people could be both perpetrator and victim. Yeah. Exactly. Like the man in this case. Yeah. So in the domestic abuse field, there's been a lot of, I think, degendering or, or recognizing that men experience domestic abuse as well as women and in, to some extent kind of making it more of a gender neutral territory. What's the consequences of doing that, especially when it comes to forced marriage? So I've given this a lot of thought and while we need to recognize that there are a small minority of those who experience forced marriage who are men, yeah. we really need to be um, thinking about what are the forms that this violence takes place what are the uh, manifestations of forced marriage or what's the nature of forced marriage for men, what mm. are the consequences, what's the impact of forced marriage for men and when we, men and women, and how this impact is differential in a mm -hmm. gendered world. And when we don't notice this, when we're not aware of this as practitioners, we misrecognize what's happening, we don't spot abuse that's going on and we, we cannot tailor our responses appropriately. Yeah. And, and that's the biggest risk, I think. So... Um, and the same issue comes up again when you look at um, disability. Yeah. In a context where we're seeing increasing move towards degendering domestic violence, saying this happens to men and women, and underneath it is the assumption it happens equally or it happens in the same way. Yeah. It happens um, to the same effect. Yeah. And I, I would say as practitioners, we need to be extremely cautious about this. And I think most practitioners know because they're out there in the field and what they see is a very gendered problem. Yeah, and, but they see getting these messages saying we need to make it degendered. Um, so one example of uh, thinking about how gender makes a big difference is if you look at forced marriage and issues around disability. So in 2015, the um, forced marriage unit at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office gave advice to uh, just over 1,200 um, people who were facing forced marriage. 80% of them were women, 20% were men. Now, when we look at people who had disability, uh, physical or learning disability, there were these were 141 cases. Now, in these cases, 62% uh, of those presenting to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office were men, okay. and only 38% for women. Now, this is something that across all forms of domestic violence or, or gender-based violence, um, so if you look at sexual violence, if you look at domestic violence... Um, any any other form of violence, you will see um, the majority, vast majority of the victims are women, and this seems to be the only uh, statistic I've come across where the majority of victims are men. So, where disability comes into the mix, men are at an increased risk yes. over women. Yeah, and 
and you need to think about why this is happening. Okay. It, it's because of the purpose of marriage in cases where the person is disabled. Yeah. And in, I suspect, I haven't done research on this, but it seems intuitive from my other research, I also do research on uh, work, gender and work, that um, behind that first marriage is the, the intention of the family is to secure a carer for someone with disability. Yeah. And therefore, it, um, I strongly believe that is what explains the fact that the majority of, of people experiencing forced marriage who have disabilities are men mm-hmm. because the family is seeking to get them married to someone who will then function as their carer. Yeah. So okay. you have to think about what's going on in terms of their lack of consent, if they don't have the capacity to consent, but you also have to think of what's happening with that woman. Yeah. She came here expecting to be married in an equal relationship in mm-hmm. a full relationship and she might find that the only reason she's been brought here is to uh, for domestic servitude um, so I recently completed a research um, looking at people who'd experienced who'd left a situation of domestic violence uh, through accessing a refuge in the UK and one of the women I spoke to a young woman um, came from a very poor family in India and um, um, she had um, so a family from the UK came to India and uh, made contact with her yeah. and she says um, you know they came to her house saw her and within half an hour they said we want to marry uh, our son to marry your daughter and um, this was very unusual firstly because they were very poor unable to give a dowry yeah. and marriage doesn't get fixed in such a short span of time but her family were delighted because because of their poverty because they had several daughters they expected that this would be a great opportunity for their daughter whose marriage prospects weren't very good because of the poverty. So when she came here, um, she'd only met him for a few minutes and they hadn't exchanged any words. And she later said, I realized that they didn't let us speak because he couldn't speak. And uh. he, he had such severe physical disabilities and, and emo- um, mental mm. health issues that he didn't know what marriage meant. Mm. She said it was never a marriage because um, he didn't know what marriage meant. And she came here and for several years. She was a full-time carer for him. She was expected to do all the work in the house. But um, in, in the evening, she was also expected to go and work in the local petrol station. And all the money she earned was um, taken by the family. It was several years before she was able to leave that mm. um, marriage. And they said, we are lucky. We've got you out of that gutter. You were <laughs> in such a poor situation. Be grateful you're here. Wow. And, and so her account was one of extreme violence. But her, the man she married was also a victim of his family in many different ways hmm. because of his disability. So it's about thinking through yeah. how all of these issues come together. Yeah, and how their experiences of, of violence and abuse is, can be very different mm-hmm. and need to be addressed in a different way. And if we make everything gender neutral, you can't address their specific risks. Yeah, and therefore I think gender has to be at the forefront. We we have to think of um, how does gender fit in here, and if there are other issues, if there's disability, we say is it just gender or is it also about disability? Mm. Is it also about age? Um, mm-hmm. Is is there any issues of sexuality? So we need to think about um, different forms of disadvantage individuals face, and and when we start asking those questions, we see that um, the forms of violence we experience are you know there are some commonalities, but there's also specificities depending on each of those things. And all of those things need to be thought about and considered when thinking about risk. So, the advice for a professional is have these things in your mind when you're considering the risks to that individual and and who else might be at risk as in well that context. Yep. Okay. Thank you. I think that's good. Yeah. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. It's been very interesting.
Thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Safe Lives Spotlight on honour-based violence and forced marriage, please go to our website, safelives.org.uk, where we will be uploading new content every week, each exploring a different aspect of honour-based violence and forced marriage. If you'd like to participate in the discussion, you can join in the live Twitter Q&A conversation on June the 8th from 10 to 11am. Just go to hashtag your choice.